Good evening, y'all. How are we doing? You guys aren't listening to me yet. That's okay. You're still saying hi to people. I get it. They're more important than me. I totally understand. Let's try it one more time. How are we doing tonight? There we go. That's what I'm talking about. Man, as Eddie said, uh, my name is Rory. I was here just a few weeks ago. And um, Eddie actually told the story of how we talked after I preached here a few weeks ago, slightly different than what happened. What happened was, is we sat down for lunch and I was like, man, that is the most fun I've had preaching in a really long time. I love you guys a lot. And so I'm just honored that you guys would have me back. Let me up here, not boo me off stage. Um, I mean, if you want to, you can just wait until I'm done and then you can start booing. Sound good? Hey, let me, um, as you guys sort of get to know me a little bit better and I get to know some of you a little bit better, there's sort of like things you just need to learn about me that will just sort of help us have a better relationship. Um, One of those is that I hate, like with a passion, loathe rules of any kind. I hate rules. Um, Here's the deal. Most of you, when you were growing up, right, before you became like mature adults, you also hated rules, right? You remember as a kid, you maybe lived in a house that was super strict. There were rules all over the place. Maybe you lived in one that was a little more lenient, but you had friends who had a ton of rules. And and the reason that I think we sort of hate rules is that we have this sense that the rules don't really help us. They just kind of keep things from us. Right, if you were a kid, you probably remember some variation of this happening. It it gets close to like five, five thirty, six o'clock, and you walk into the kitchen, your mom or your dad is making dinner or dinner's on the way, and you see that there are like cookies on the counter. And you look at your mom or your dad, whoever your guardian was, and you ask the question, Can I have a cookie? And they say, No. You can't have a cookie because it will what? Ruin your appetite. And that always felt a little weird to me. And you know what I discovered when I became an adult? That they lied. (laughs) I can actually have a cookie before dinner, eat dinner, and have a cookie after. And guess what? I still might want in and out at one in the morning. My appetite was not ruined at all. Or maybe, maybe you can remember this when you were a little kid, your parents had that moment where they sat down with you and they talked to you. You were going to like play at the park or do something. They said, hey, listen, there are weird people out there who will pull up in their car and say, hey, I have candy in the car. Get in my car. And as a kid, you think, well, they really have candy? And they say, listen, they're weird people. You don't want to get in the car with a what? A stranger. Little did my parents know, I now have an app on my phone that when I travel just for fun, I can invite a stranger to come pick me up in their car, and guess what? I get into it, and the best drivers sometimes have candy. (laughs) Or if you grew up in my house, my mom had this super strict thing that we could not have soda in the house. I don't know why. I wasn't like, you know, an obese child or anything. I was certainly no bigger than I am now. No one laugh. But she said we couldn't have soda in the house. So I remember my mom, she would throw these like really, really fancy dinner parties. And so my brother and I one night, my mom also wasn't the greatest cook growing up. So we went out before the dinner party and got Taco Bell. We like pre-gamed the dinner with Taco Bell. We ate it all and we bought the largest drinks that we could get. 
full of soda. We show up to the dinner party, I'm talking white tablecloth, fine china, glasses, goblets to drink out of. I don't know why we had any of this stuff. And we sit down at the table and pull out from under the table the sodas. My mother didn't say a word, but you felt the atmosphere completely change. She shot daggers at me and my brother. All because of this rule, we can't have soda in our house. Man, I I hate rules. And most of you are honestly probably fairly similar. Because when you experience sort of like a handing out of rules, you have this moment where you're like, man, is any of this really gonna matter to me? And believe it or not, many of us actually do this exact thing when it comes to faith. We have these moments where we sort of read through the scriptures and we see these things we ought to do or not, or not to do and we have this moment where we go, well, is this really gonna like matter? In fact, I've heard the Bible often described as like a rule book for, for, for good living, for Christian living. And I, I get the sort of attempt there to make it sort of not this weird religious book from thousands of years ago. But the premise is that as you read it, it just gives you do's and do nots. And your job is to simply attempt to follow them. And most of the time, the way we've been presented what the Bible is for or how we even read some of these things is that we only follow the rules so that we won't go where? To hell. So we get these rules presented to us, all these things we can't do, we should do, and really what goes through our mind is, well, the only reason I shouldn't do these things or I should do them is so that one day I can sort of get off of this rock and go live in blissful eternity with Jesus, which some people say is gonna be like an eternity-long worship service, and for some of you, that actually sounds more like hell than it does like heaven. (laughs) So we have these moments, we hear all these rules, and we're handed them to them, we read the Bible, and we go, is this really gonna have any impact on my life here and now. You can quickly see where the problem arises for some of us. But what Paul is about to do tonight as we continue in this conversation through the book of Ephesians, he's actually gonna give us a different picture of what all these sort of lists of do's and do nots matter. So before I hop into it, you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter four. We're gonna start in verse 25. While you're turning there, would you join me as we simply pray and ask Jesus to be a part of this? Oh, Jesus, thank you that we get to gather as a tribe tonight, as we get to gather as a group and experience your glory in this place. God, we just got done singing that you are worthy, and you are. You're not worthy because of anything you've done, anything you will do for us, but you are worthy simply because that is who you are. So God, would you show up and be worthy tonight? Would you show up and would you shake the walls in this place? Would you sort of crack open our hearts and help us see you for who you really are? You have renewed us, you have made us new creations. Tonight what we wanna do is is speak to the parts of us that are still being made new, that have not experienced the fullness of your sanctification, of your holiness and your goodness, so God, would you do it tonight? Holy Spirit, would you come? As we open up the scriptures, would you reveal to us things that we have not yet seen before? We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Ephesians four, 
verse 25. It says this, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with our own hands. In other words, get a job. That they may have something to share with those in need. That might be a word for somebody tonight. Get a job. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We're gonna come to that in just a little bit. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Now, I'm a little bit cynical. So if you're anything like me, you read through this, as we just did, and what you noticed were 16 different things that you can do or should not do. 16 things. We read like four verses. You think to yourself, um, God, I, uh, I don't have a lot of margin in my life to uh, get 16 different things right or wrong. I'm just trying here. If you're like me, you see this, this list. A list like this was pretty common in the day that Paul would have wrote this letter. letter. It was a list of what we would know as exhortations. A list of exhortations would be something that someone would write or, or speak out loud to a group of people that either they knew or didn't know. But, but what they didn't know, but what they would say out loud to them it, are this list of things that they should either be concerned about because they're doing and they shouldn't be doing, or a list of things that they weren't doing and they ought to be doing. Moralists use this sort of argument and logic all the time. They would present things to people, say, you ought to do this, you ought not to do that. It was a fairly common thing. So what Paul does, he does this all the time in his letters. We're not gonna throw these up on the screens, but First Timothy chapter one, he does this. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly, the sinful, the unholy, and irreligious for those who kill their fathers and mothers, yikes, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. He does this again in 1 Corinthians chapter six. He says, or do you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers. You get the idea, he keeps going on and on. Paul used this method of exhortation all the time. You actually see this in other places in the Bible. What's maybe the most common place that you see it? I'd take some guesses. Proverbs, no, that's good, you see it in Proverbs. You also see it, probably the most popular place that you see it, God actually hands it out in the 10 Commandments. He gives a list of things that you should do or you should not do. It's a fairly common way that people would have talked back in that day. And, and what can happen if, as you keep sort of encountering these lists all throughout scripture is that what can quickly happen in your mind is Christianity becomes no longer about who you know, it becomes about what you do. Right? Christianity can very quickly become a religion that is simply built on nothing more than rules. And the truth is, is that these rules begin to matter to us because when we mess up, we feel guilt and we feel shame. They only begin to matter about where we will spend 
eternity. What the, the narrative that begins to build in our mind is that this has very little to do with right now, and it has everything to do with something far away. And before long, you begin to look at these lists, and you mess up, you don't get them right, because you're human, and you start to do this thing where you start to look at God a little bit weird, right? You're like, God, I'm trying here, man. Like, I'm doing everything I can. It feels like every time I turn the page, there's one more thing I can or cannot do. Before long, you begin to ask the question of, is there anything I even can do without making God upset? C.S. Lewis, some of you may know him, he, he says this quote. He says, there's a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. He replied that as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who was always snooping around to see if someone is enjoying themselves and then trying to stop it. This is quickly what our mind can do. We see lists like the one that Paul's writing in Ephesians of all the things we ought to do or not to do. And we begin to wonder if what God is simply doing is looking at our lives and going, I see all the stuff you do, let me simply take it away. But, I would actually propose to you that there's something more going on here. There's something actually significant. It's not just about can we get the right things down and stop doing the wrong things so that one day we might end up in heaven and so that one day we may not go to hell and burn forever and be tormented and all that. We create these sort of paradigms. It's all about one thing, not about the other at all. I would propose to you that what Paul is trying to get us to recognize, as every author in the Christian scriptures is, is that these are not just fluffy religious ideas of things to do or not to do. Get this, this if you can get this, this will change how you view faith, I promise you. They are not things to do and not to do, they are statements about real life. They're statements about reality. The great philosopher and writer Dallas Willard, he says it this way, religion as actually lived, not as some figment of the academic imagination, always claims to involve knowledge of what? How things are. When I got this, this completely changed my perspective on faith. What he's saying, what Dallas Willard is saying is that the rules, the stipulations, the commandments, the things that you hear Jesus say in the scriptures are not statements about a religious ideal that you will never be able to live up to. They are statements about what the good life actually looks like. They are statements about what the best kind of living actually looks like. How do we know this? Because they're statements about who Jesus was. Have you ever thought about this? If anyone ever came to you and said, Jesus didn't live a good life, you'd be like, what? Which is bizarre, right? This guy died on a cross in like his early 30s. And most of us believe that Jesus lived the best life that one could live. So these are not statements about things you ought to do or ought not to do. These are statements about how the world works in its best form. Let me give you some examples. Or let me just ask you some questions. When Jesus says, it is truly more blessed to give than to receive, was he lying? Was he lying? Or was he just like saying something sweet so you could like post it? Was he telling the truth? Is your life actually better when you give than when you receive? Most of us want to say yes, but isn't there a part of you that's going, I don't know. Have you ever gotten a present? Like have you ever, has someone ever given you a gift? Christmas morning? Is Jesus telling the truth? Or, or I think 
I think about a couple other moments. When Jesus says this, this one's hard. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn then the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand them your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Is he right? Have any of you ever been in a fight? I have never once been in a fight and gone, you know what, one more. (laughs) Never. But if what Paul is writing is true, and what Jesus says is right, then the best way to live is that way. We still don't get it though, do we? It's still hard to agree with. I I think about another verse. Not Jesus who says this, but the prophet Isaiah writes this. Learn to do right. Seek justice, defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Is he right? Is it a better way to live when we see injustice and we push back against it? Or is the better way to live to go into isolation and take care of ourselves? Is the better way to live on the front lines of the civil rights movement in the 60s? Or was it to be hiding as far away as possible? When you see lists like this in the scriptures, guys, and this is why it's important, these are not statements about all the things you might get wrong, about all the things you need to figure out how to get right. These are statements about what the best version of life is. Jesus, Paul, the writers of the scriptures are not constantly looking at you going, don't sin, or or God, you know, he puts you in the hot place. That's not what he's doing. They're writing, Jesus is teaching, everything is pointing to the idea that there is an ideal way of life that is not distant and far off and ethereal and like separated from your human body right here and now. When Jesus says on earth as it is in heaven, it's the idea that heaven can somehow meet us in this space. The life with God, eternal life with God can meet us in real life right now. Now, my point is simply this, that the morals of the scriptures are as interested in saving you for eternity as they are interested in saving you right now. They're not just interested in you sort of like getting away someday. They're not interested in saving you so that you'll be great for Jesus later. The morals of the scriptures are interested in saving you right now. If you write something down tonight, it would be this. Christian living is not about following rules. It's all about living the right way for right now. Let's look at what Paul actually says here, right? He says, speak truthfully. Why? It's not because God is against lying, although that is true. It's actually because when you live a dishonest life, your character is fractured. So you know what happens? When you try to live out the Great Commission as someone whose character is fractured, People don't believe you. When you go, man, Jesus is the best way to live, and then they look at your life and they go, but he's not the best way for you. The reason Paul says don't lie is not just because it's bad to lie. He says don't lie because it actually has effects on your human life here and now. People stop trusting you, people quit believing you. When Paul writes, essentially, quit stealing and get a job, it's because one, Stealing gets you thrown in jail. Pretty straightforward. 
The other part is because you guys know this. Hey, ladies in the room, um, if you met a guy who was interested in you and he didn't have a job and had nothing lined up, what are you doing? You're, bye, right, bye. Fellas in the room, you meet a girl and she's beautiful, but you find out that the way she's beautiful is she steals makeup. What are you doing? Bye. The point is, when you steal, when you lie, when you don't work a good job, when you don't, com- when you don't provide things to the world in which God has placed you in, trust is fractured. Everything is broken. Your relationships with people are fractured. There's a reason that when Jesus is asked what's the most important commandment, he doesn't just say, love God with everything that you have. He also turns the answer horizontal and says you also love people. The nature of your relationships with people impacts your relationship with God as much as anything else does. Think about when Paul says this. He says don't let the sun go down on your anger. He says get rid of bitterness, anger, and brawling. Let me ask you, do angry people just automatically go to hell? The answer is no. Some of you are like yes they are, all of them. We'll preach, we'll talk about self-righteousness in a few weeks, it'll be great. (laughs) Do angry people just automatically go to hell? No. Do angry people make other people's lives hell? Yes. Yes. Jesus is not just interested in saving you for heaven, he's trying to save you in this space right now. He's not looking at you going, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. He's trying to get you to live the Christ-like life right now in this moment, but we fail at it, don't we? I think just um, about a week ago, my wife and I, we, we have two kids. We have a, a three-year-old boy named Huck and a one-year-old daughter named Maisel, and I was trying to get Huck out of the door to daycare. Now, those of you who have had like younger siblings or maybe some of you have kids for whatever reason, like three-year-old, that sounded sarcastic. I didn't mean it that way. I just meant if you have a kid, you have a kid. Three-year-old boys trying to get them like dressed and get their coat on and their boots on, it's like crazy difficult. So I'm wrestling with this and I walk into the kitchen and I see that the dishes from the night before are all still there. My wife then walks into the kitchen and sees that the dishes from the night before are all still there. And she looks at me and goes, when are you planning on doing the dishes? I was like, I was about to ask why you haven't done them already. Y'all, marriage is so hard. Grace, give me some. I go, I was about to ask why you haven't done them already. Long story short, it's like eight o'clock. We're supposed to get out of the door at 8.30. My wife and I are in a full out argument about the dishes, which you know, when you argue with your significant other, often the argument becomes something that it didn't start out as. We started arguing about dishes. Before you know it, we're arguing about how she thinks she's a better driver than me. Like, I don't, I don't even know how we get there. But we start having this argument. And you know how this works, it sort, of, it sort of slowly starts to bubble up, get more tense, voices get louder, people start sweating, blood vessels are like popping. And I'm finally like, oh my gosh, I've gotta get out of this door and take my kid to daycare. And I try to find my son, and I can't find him. And I quickly realize that he's hiding. 
And I go up to him and I go, hey, buddy, what's going on? And he goes, you're mad at mama. I go, uh-huh. <laughs> he goes, you yelled at her. I was like, uh-huh. But he wouldn't let me pick him up. It was like heartbreaking. My wife and I didn't think much of it. We were just having an argument. You know, as married people do, you just try to solve problems and figure things out. But I realized my kid at this moment, my three-year-old son who I love and care for, is terrified of me because he saw me get angry. My wife is now hurt because I've gotten angry. See, if you wanna understand what Paul's like ethic is, it's that. It's not just that now I've sort of messed up with God because I've fractured relationships, it's that I now have fractured relationships. I now have a three-year-old that I have to go and apologize and explain to him that I was wrong for getting angry. I have to now go to my wife and explain to her that she should have done the dishes, but I was wrong. <laughs> you guys get my point. So often we do things in real life, human flesh and blood life, that messes up things and we begin to think what's the biggest problem is God is just judging, judging, judging. He's writing on his like, journal all the things we've messed up. And what we can forget is that in our forefront is, is all the people that we've hurt, that we've gotten angry with. It's the places where we've been lazy and lethargic and apathetic. It's the places, maybe you haven't physically stolen something, but, you, but you've been, you've been, um, you've been uh, unclear about your motives with things. There are places where we have completely fallen Short. See, I wasn't concerned in that moment that God was making a note about all the places that I failed. I was concerned that in real life, right now, where the kingdom is supposed to find its entry point, that I had messed up in real life. See, the truth is, what's true for me is true for you, and what God is interested in is saving me for right now as much as he's interested in saving me for eternity. So if that's all true, an obvious question still sort of arises, right? Which is, well then how do I make sure I'm living well right now? And believe it or not, because Paul knows that these are the conversations that would be had, he writes about it. Verse 30, I said we would come back to this. It's right in the middle of this list. He says the words, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And if you're like me, you read that and you go, man, this word grieve seems fairly out of place. I don't know if you've ever used that word in real life, but it's a word that we use when, when someone we love moves away. It's a word when we use when a longtime friendship is sort of broken off and we grieve. It's, it's the word that we use when we've dated someone for a long time time and you've given them your heart and all of a sudden they come up to you one day and they say, it's not you, it's me. And you cry into a bowl of ice cream. <laughs> I'm not speaking from experience. See, grieve, Rocky Road, grieve, <laughs> we grieve, <laughs> we grieve when someone or something we love is no longer present. So what is Paul saying? 
He says the words, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When Paul writes this, the idea of grieving the Holy Spirit is meant to draw our minds back to the days of Israel wandering in the wilderness. The prophet Isaiah reflects on this. Isaiah 63, we're gonna have this up on the screen. Verse seven, he says, I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel according to his compassion and many kindnesses. Starting off pretty good. He said, surely they are my people, children, hold on to that word, who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed, which complete sidebar, your God is a God who feels with you. Which some of you, Eddie pointed this out, some of you may have walked in tonight feeling things that you have not said out loud, things that you're afraid to talk to your friends about, things that you're afraid to say to your family members. Maybe they're feelings of deep depression, maybe they're feelings of deep anxiety. Maybe they've even gotten all the way to the place of thinking that the world might be better off if you weren't here. Here's what I, I want you to hear tonight. This is not part of the message. But God feels with you. He feels with you. Your God is not a God who is so distant and far off that he's only concerned about those things. As much as he's concerned about us living well, he's interested in us living well. God feels with you. He's with you in this moment. Isaiah, he says this. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. And then watch this. Yet, they rebelled. Do you see what Isaiah just did? He listed all these beautiful characteristics of God, the things that God has done for these people in the wilderness. He's carried them, he's loved them, he's rescued them. And yet, what do they do? Rebel. And grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Isaiah, as a prophet, is telling the story of a God who is loving and kind and merciful, claiming Israel as his children. And what, do, what does Israel constantly do to his spirit in the wilderness? Stiff arms it, pushes it as far away as possible. They come into trouble, they ask God for help, he shows up for help. And then as soon as they're in good shape, you know what they do? Push him as far away. This is why the word grieve is used to talk about this story. The word grieve is what you use when someone dies. The word grieve is what you use when someone that should be close to you is no longer. This is why that word is used. What he is saying is, stop pushing the spirit away. Quit pushing the spirit as far away from you as possible. Don't reject the voice of the spirit. And I know what most of us are doing in this room. Rory, I've never rejected the voice of the spirit. You wanna play a game? Let me ask you this. Has God ever suggested that you invite someone to church? Mm -hmm. and you've gone, nah. Has God, ever, has God ever revealed to you something about someone and what you knew you ought to do is step into their life and be a comforter, be a comforting presence to them? And you've gone, nah. Maybe for good reasons, maybe out of fear, maybe out of worry. 
Has the spirit ever told you that you're dating the wrong person? And you were like, nah, that's just indigestion. <laughs> and it might have been from the last time you ate too much ice cream because they said to you, it's not you, it's me. And you heard it, you felt it, you were like, this person, he says I'm his one, I don't feel like he's the one, and you went, nah. Now here's the truth. Those moments aren't really the problem. Rejecting the spirit in those moments, while they're not good, they're not the problem. The problem comes when you have that moment where you go, I'm crying out to God, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to give me answers. I need clarity on my career, on my calling, on if I'm supposed to get married, on where I'm supposed to move to next, on if I'm supposed to switch my major. And you, I know this happens, I've talked to too many people as a pastor, you show up to church and you go, God is just not talking to me. The question is, did you listen to him the first time he talked to you? Because it's real convenient about 18 times down the line that he said something and you're like, nah, I can't hear it, I don't really know what's going on. It's happened because the first time he said something, you brushed it off. The second time he said something, you were like, nah. The third time, you ate more ice cream. The fourth time, you were like, nah, I can't do it. Here's my point to you. The more you reject the voice of the Spirit, the less likely you are to hear it. That's simply the truth. The more often you reject it, the more often you push it away, the less likely you are to hear it. Because here's the truth about our God. He doesn't stop speaking. It's not like you reject him once and he's like, I'm done with him. Our God is not disinterested in your life. Our God is radically interested in your well-being in your life. So the only reason that you find yourself in these massive moments going, God, where are you? Why can't I feel you? Why can't I hear you? Holy Spirit, why? Did you listen to him the first time you got angry at someone? And the Spirit said, hey, don't go to bed without dealing with that. And instead you just binged the office and fell asleep? What about the last time? What about the last time that you got in an argument with someone and you said some things that just completely cut them down? And God said to you, hey, you know you, you probably need to ask for forgiveness. And you went, man, I'm not asking for forgiveness. I'm too tough, I'm too strong. I'm, a, I'm focused, I can't do that. God, I'm not. And then weeks later, you're finding yourself going, I don't know why I can't hear God. The problem isn't that he stops speaking. The problem is, is that the more you reject the voice of the Spirit, the less likely you are to hear it. Did you listen to the voice of the Spirit the last time sin was like crouching at your door, waiting to step in? Did you listen to him the last time that you were like ready to go to that website? And you heard him speak truth for you and you went, nah. Did you listen to him the last time that you found yourself in the middle of a conversation just gossiping about someone, just laying it all out there, and you heard that thing that was like, you know, I probably shouldn't be doing this. Some of you have made the Holy Spirit such a mystical thing that the concept of like 
your conscience just telling you something is wrong you think is like so worldly you won't even respond to it. I believe that the Holy Spirit sometimes uses the things that we just feel in our gut and we go, yeah, that's wrong. I probably shouldn't do that. That's your first step in listening to the Spirit. But the more times you skip by that, the more you reject it, the less likely you are to hear it. And here's the beautiful thing. I'm not telling you all this to make you feel bad. The Holy Spirit is not described in the Bible as a criticizer. He's not a belittler. He doesn't bring judgment. That's not his role. His name, as we often talk about him, is he's a helper. He's there to help you live the life that Jesus is inviting you into. The life where the kingdom and real and the real world have intersected, where, where the spiritual is not some faraway thing, where everything has come into one place. This is what the Holy Spirit helps you step into. He's not there to belittle you, to make you feel worse. He's interested in helping you walk in that way. The problem is, is when you reject him and you push him further away, it becomes harder and harder to hear him. Why does any of this matter to God? Because the good life is only found in listening to his voice. This is how Paul ends this little section. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as what? Dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering or sacrifice to God. He calls you, Paul writes this, and what he says to you is that you are beloved children of God. This is the life you are called to live. And there's a lot of ways that we could sort of maneuver that metaphor and make it into something. But here's the bottom line about children. They know their parents' voice. They know the voice of their father. They know the voice of their mother. This is what children do. I know this to be true. If my son is like out in the yard, running around, playing like crazy, and all of a sudden I yell his name, I've watched him through a window do this. He freezes and comes to find me. Paul says that you are called to be children of God. Children know the voice of their father. And when you know the voice of the father, living right or living wrong becomes less of a concern. And what becomes the concern is are you living in a way that is in constant communication and connection with him. Do you listen to the Father? Becomes the question. It moves from are you just the child who hears him, but are you the child who listens? Again, the beautiful thing about everything that Paul describes in this moment is embodied in the life of Jesus. And there's a moment in Jesus' life, many of you know it as the, the transfiguration. And what happens is, is Jesus takes two of his trusted, three of his trusted disciples up onto a hill, Peter, James, and John. And, and as they're standing there, they're high up on this mountain by themselves. The Bible says that he was transfigured before them. The way that it's described is that his face shone like sun and his clothes became white as the light. And just then before them, Moses and Elijah appeared standing with Jesus, these three men are shocked at what they're seeing. They're seeing heroes of their 
ethnic and their religious background. They're seeing all of this happening in this moment. Jesus, this guy they've been following, who they believe is something of a significant teacher, is now being revealed to them as part of the history of God's people. They are seeing this big picture painted before them. And Peter, he sort of does like the typical human thing where he says, Jesus, you want us to like build houses for these two guys who we thought were ghosts, but they're here right now. Can we build houses? We'll like charge tickets. People can come and like look at you guys and like see them. And then all of a sudden, this incredible thing happens. It says this, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then he says one last thing. Listen to him. Listen to him. The beauty of what God gives us in the person of Jesus is a savior for eternity, but a savior who gives us a picture of what the good life looks like now. It is one where we are not broken in our relationships, one where we don't lie and steal, one where we work hard because God has called us to cultivate the, the raw organic materials of the world. It's a space, it's a life where we honor people, where we don't let anger get the best of us. Not because if we do, we go to hell, but because if we do, we miss out on heaven right here and right now. This is the vision of life for a Christian. And I would guess that there's some of you who are in here who maybe you've been coming for a few weeks, maybe you got dragged here tonight, maybe someone told you you were going to Whataburger to check it out and they brought you here instead. <laughs> Which side note, I lived in Texas, Whataburger's not that great. <laughs> unless, unless, hold on, unless Pastor Brady's listening and then it's like the best thing ever. Um, I, don't, I don't know how you got in here tonight, but maybe the vision of life that you've been handed is not that good. Maybe the vision of life that you've been handed is one of continual generational poverty. Maybe the vision of life you've been handed is a continual line of divorce. So you're scared of even getting married because God forbid you could mess this thing up as well. Maybe the vision of life that you've been handed is one of continually broken relationships. Maybe the one that you've been handed is one of alcoholism, of addiction. Maybe it's a vision of a life lived with no purpose. And as you hear about this person of Jesus tonight and the vision that he has for your life, all that's starting to creep into your mind is, I think I might want that. So all I wanna say to you tonight, I'm gonna pray over you in just a second, but if you find yourself in that space, would you do me a favor and find me or find Eddie or find any leader around here tonight and simply say to them, I want that kind of life. Why don't you guys stand real quick as we get ready to sing, but let me pray over you as we do. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we asked you to shake the walls in this place tonight. And I believe that for many of us, the walls that need to be shaken are the ones that exist over our heart. The places where we have become shut off to you, where we have rejected your spirit. So God, for those moments and those times that we've done that, we repent. We ask for forgiveness where we've stopped listening to you. Would you remind us that we are children and children know the voice of their father. 
would you remove the guilt and shame from our lives that has been placed there by thinking that the Bible and the life of Jesus and, the Christ, and Christian living is just about following rules? Would you remind us that you care about us in this moment as much as you will one day when we are in heaven? That your heart does not shape shift based on where we are? That you care as much about what it means for us to be human? That part of what it means to find you, for you to pursue us and hunt us down and, and draw us into a loving relationship with you has everything to do with us being human right here and right now? And God, would you not let a single person leave this room tonight who sees the vision of their life and longs for the vision of life that Jesus has? God, would you renew us? Would you transform us? Would you make us into the children of God that we have been called to be? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.